Good morning, church family. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Last week I gave a, uh, a pretty lengthy intro with disclaimers about Revelation. And so if you missed last week, I really want to encourage you to just go back online, watch the last, you know, the, the last, or at least the first 10 minutes of the last message and kind of see how we're going to treat this book. And uh, then the rest of the message was focused on the first three verses of chapter one, uh, which, which tell us why the, why the revelation, why these visions were sent, and to whom and what they'll reveal, okay? And also, of course, who sent them. And, and these verses are called the prologue in some of our Bibles, uh, while the following verses are viewed more as an introduction. And frankly, I'm going to tell you, um, I don't know the difference necessarily between the two, but uh, but while the, the kids are finding these bingo pictures, um, just going to say this, uh, last week we only got through three verses, okay? But today, we're going to get through three verses, <laughs> okay? So, uh, there, there really, there's so much in this text to, to digest, and so uh, what we'll be doing together this morning is digesting it. And so if you're, if you're familiar with the concept of introductions, you know typically that what they do uh, as, as far as I understand it, is they give a pretty good idea of, uh, or a good feel for what's going to come next in the body of the text. And it's been said that one of the best ways to make sure that people retain what they hear is to tell them what you're about to tell them. You guys know this, right? And then you tell it to them, and then you tell them what you told them. And there's kind of a sense in which John does this. He starts out the book of Revelation by explaining that it's written so that God can tell his servants about things that are to come, okay? But he's still in the introductory phase of today's passage in that he's introducing us to the main subject or, or perhaps the main character in the book. And so we're going to take a moment, we're going to open with prayer, and then we'll dive into verses 4 through 6 of Revelation chapter 1. So will you guys bow with me? Father, I pray for inner peace. I pray, Lord, as this message is preached, that your people receive it. I pray that they will be good soil. I pray that the words will take root and bear fruit. And I pray, Father, that as we look at the book of Revelation, there's so much in here. I pray that we focus less on the speculative aspects of it, but more on what you can definitely glean right from the pages. Because we know, Lord, there are things in here that you absolutely want us to pick up on. I pray that today we grab it all. In Jesus' name, amen. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, is this not working? Didn't turn it on. Now i got to give you all a minute to find the pictures. Sorry, kids. Take a minute. Find them quick. I'll go ahead and read. And if you're in the, uh, the book of Revelation, you can read along with me. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Okay, you, you might have noticed that the title of this message is a very common phrase that you hear from this pulpit, okay? However, there is a lot of stuff before we get to that specific message. And so prior to that main subject, let's talk 
about some of the important things in verse 4. Okay, there's a lot of particularities that we learn in this, this one short verse. Before we get to talking about who Jesus is and what he did, which can also be described as what the Father did through him, uh, firstly, we learn who the author of this letter is, in case we missed it in verse 1. Okay, it's John. Now, it's been speculated over the years, over the centuries, really, that this, this is a different John from the Apostle John, but I do not find any compelling evidence for that argument. I, I, I think this, this certainly seems as though it's the same John that wrote the three epistles and, and the Gospel of John because they, they, he has a very distinctive style, okay? He's, uh, if you read the Gospel of John, you can pick up that it's the same guy <laughs> that writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in Revelation. You can just tell. Um, but he, he probably also would have designated, were he someone else? You know, I think he probably would have said, this is not that John, <laughs> this is another John. Um, not to mention, he refers to himself as being an eyewitness to the word and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we also learn here, while we say, okay, we think we know who, which John this is, we learn who these seven churches are uh, very soon, that the Lord is giving individual prophetic messages to, okay? It's in the next couple of chapters here. And guys, I'm really looking forward to digging into this. These, these specific, the seven addresses to the churches in the next couple of weeks or a few weeks, because there's so much good stuff in there that we can just, just take from that. But for now, just know this, all seven of these churches uh, were in what today would be modern-day Turkey, okay? And these were apparently the, the main uh, lampstands, so to speak, of the Gentile world. Uh, next, you may notice the greeting. It's a pretty standard greeting in the New Testament. Grace to you and peace. And I think sometimes we hear these words so often that we don't always think about what they mean or, or why they're included in the greeting. So let's talk about that for just a moment. Um, most of you are probably aware grace is typically associated with, um, with unmerited favor, right? Like getting something good that you don't deserve. And it's from the Greek word charis, which literally means gift, okay? Charis and grace, uh, same word, two different languages. Um, and this can refer to the saving grace by which people are justified through faith. For instance, in, in you know, second, uh, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. Um, but it also it's kind of a catch-all term for for the blessings that come from God, who is good. Okay. Now, peace, on the other hand, is from the Greek the Greek word irene. So, if you know somebody named Irene, that name means peace. And in its most basic form, it means the absence of strife. But there's more to it than that. It's kind of like the Hebrew shalom. You know, most of us are familiar with, with shalom. It, it, it means sort of a wholeness that's characterized by a sense of, of inner calm and a lack of need. You know, it, it's being satisfied and saying, I, I have what I need. It's all here in the Lord. I have this. To wish grace and peace to someone is kind of like saying good vibes to you, but like in an extremely devout religious, you know, Christian sort of way. So it, it's wishing upon someone more of the best parts of being in Christ. So speaking of Christ, he takes a very prominent role in this chapter, but we also see that John is not neglecting the other persons of the Godhead. Okay, you may recall um, the hymn, Holy, 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 which is the phrase pulled out of Isaiah chapter 6. Um, there's a line in there that we often gravitate toward when we talk about God. We say, God in three persons, right? Blessed Trinity. 
And the word Trinity shows up nowhere in the Bible, neither does the word uh, triune, which I prefer to Trinity. But, but the Bible is clear that God consists of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, okay? And that's, that's not three different gods, okay? And it's also not just three different faces or manifestations of, of you know, this, of the same person of God. These are three distinct persons who are all one God. <laughs> and we know this because all three of them are mentioned in the Scripture as God, and they all appear at the same time in a couple of circumstances in the New Testament. One of them is where Jesus is baptized. Do you remember that? As he is lifted up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends as a dove, and as it alights on him, we hear the voice of the Father from heaven. So the three persons of God are all present at one time. So Jesus, however, was sent by the Father, right? And he prayed to the Father. He was fully subjected to the Father. And he also said that the Spirit could not come to the disciples until he had ascended to heaven. So all of this indicates a hierarchy within the Godhead. And we'll probably get into that more as we continue this study. But anyway, uh, when John refers to the one who is and who was and who is to come, he is referring to God the Father in this particular instance. Now, how do we know that? Well, for one thing, Christ appears separately, okay? Both, both in this chapter standing before John, but also later as the Lamb. While God the Father never leaves the throne, which is mentioned uh, in verse 4, that also seems to be the position of supreme authority. God the Father to be seated on the throne. But it also appears as though the Holy Spirit is here in verse 4, although perhaps He is appearing as seven spirits in this vision. Now, here's the thing, okay? I want to tread lightly here. Because um, the book of Revelation is officially called apocalyptic literature, okay? That means it's full of like signs and symbols and, and things that are intended to convey something without necessarily being literal, all right? And a lot of times in these sort of writings, uh, there are there are numbers that are meant to represent something. And particularly in Revelation, uh, we, we see a lot of the numbers. Three, which denotes God. We see four, which is uh, typically representing earth, you know, because of the four different directions and things like that. And then we see seven, which is three plus four, and also considered a connotation of perfection. Now, we're going to get into all that later, because the numbers come up a lot more later. Um, but anyway, I don't know for certain this is the Holy Spirit, but when God, uh, when God has seven spirits around His throne and John's referring to them, it makes me think He's probably referring to, to a visual picture, like a vision that He's been given of God's Spirit, of, of the perfection of God's Spirit. And that's why He sees seven. Now, this, this is, of course, speculation, okay? I'm not at all dogmatic about this. Um, a lot of this book is going to be more open to interpretation than we'd like. And sometimes you're probably going to be irritated with me for not nailing it down quite as well as you'd like me to. Tough, okay? Um, I think it's, it's valuable for us, though, to recognize how God sets up the theme of who Jesus is and what God does through him. And so we're going to back up. We're going to read verse 4 and then continue through the beginning of verse 5, okay? John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace Excuse me, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, that little, little chunk right there is maybe one of the meatiest sections that you'll see anywhere in Scripture. There's so much contained. 
And it's, it's, very, it's a very condensed, very concise idea of who Jesus is. And I'm going to be painfully, ob, you know, just not obvious, painfully honest. I'm, I'm going to tell you, I breezed over this when I first was, was doing the study for this. I kind of, I almost skipped it because it's just one of those things that you, you know, you read and you go, yeah, Jesus, he's, he's all these great things. But one of the commentaries pointed out something that really I, I hadn't noticed. It got my attention, though. I hope it's going to affect all of you in a similar way. Okay. Um, you know what? Raise your hand if you have heard of the threefold office of Jesus Christ. The threefold office of Jesus Christ. Really? Wow. I'm, I'm really surprised. Okay. There's a compelling theory that all three offices of Jesus are right here in this sentence, and they're expressed differently, but the concepts are there. So... Anybody want to say what the three offices are? At least three people raised their hands, so I'm counting on somebody to bail me out here. I'll help you. Prophet, priest, and king. Thank you. The three offices of Jesus Christ. Prophet, priest, and king. So we're going to look into that. First of all, who is Jesus. Well, John refers to him as a faithful witness, okay? And what does a faithful witness do? Tells the truth. Thank you. I'm behind on the, there we go. He tells the truth. We're going to break it down here. Faithful means true, reliable, honest, right? A witness is someone who has uh, observed or heard something, and then they're called upon to share that thing. So a faithful witness in this context would be one who proclaims the truth that God has given them to spread. And what better definition is there for a prophet than that? You know, think about it. Biblically speaking, the word prophecy can mean two uh, different but related things, okay? Uh, the one we, we think of probably most often when we think of prophecy is we think of telling the future, right? Um, but when we look in Scripture... We see that plenty of, 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 of the, you know, the foretelling is among the Old Testament prophets, but we also see other things. They, they often told of things yet to come, but they also often proclaimed what is true. They proclaimed God's truth in such a way that it affected people powerfully. Now, Jesus did both of these. You know, Jesus foretold, uh, for instance, his death on the cross to pay for our sins. He foretold his resurrection from the dead. And the New Testament epistles have a lot of this type of prophecy, especially Revelation. But prophecy, like I said, also means proclaiming what is true. And Jesus did much more of that kind of prophecy. He told people what the Father wanted them to hear, whether it was intended to, to soften their hearts or to harden their hearts in certain cases. So take this a step further with the fact that Jesus, His words and His actions were never in contradiction Right? Not, not in, a, in a way that you can, you can point to and say that, that Jesus said this and didn't live it, right? And so if that's the case, if he fully complemented the will of God with his will, if these things were never you know, in contradiction, that shows that Jesus is the perfect prophet. You know, he says that he's only able to do and say the things that the Father gives him to do and say. And if you're not familiar with this concept, I want to draw your attention to three passages in John's Gospel. Uh, I encourage you to write them down in the notes section, just, just the references. Um, in John 5.19, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Then in chapter 8, verse 28, he said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Now that one, that one's even more mind-blowing when you realize Jesus literally said, you will know that I am. That word He is not in the Greek. When the Son of Man is lifted up, you will know that I am. And then in 12... 49, that's chapter 12, verse 49 of John's gospel. Jesus says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but my Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. So in light of this, and in light of his sinless life, it's safe to say that Jesus Christ successfully fulfilled the office of prophet in a way that no one else in Scripture had ever been able to do, okay? Because his actions were a perfect testimony to every word he spoke. Full consistency. No one would see any discrepancies between Christ's words and his life, which is, which is really what every believer should aspire to, right? And yet no one has ever perfectly achieved except Christ. Next, uh, let's examine what the phrase firstborn of the dead means. What, why is that so important? I mean, it sounds kind of morbid, right? You know, firstborn among the dead, if you don't have any idea of what the gospel teaches anyway. But, but since we understand that the good news about Christ includes that he died for our sins and was raised to life again, it becomes a whole lot less dark. It's the fact that he is the firstborn of the dead. And that's a phrase construction that only shows up once in the Bible in this verse. Although the Apostle Paul comes close in Colossians 1.18. But it, it is this fact that points us to Jesus in the office of priest. You might ask, well, how so? Man, I'm really behind on this. I'm sorry, guys. There we go. Priest, if we look at what Jesus accomplished, okay, with his atoning death and with his resurrection, it very clearly establishes him as what the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 15 tells us. It calls him our great high priest. Now, what is the earthly role of a priest? Offer sacrifice. You look in the Old Testament, he's the intermediary, right, between God and man. And he sacrifices animals so that their blood, it's interesting because in the Old Testament, they would refer to it as atoning for sin. But what's actually happening here, the blood was a placeholder for God to overlook the sins of his people. And he would do this by entering, the, the priest would do this by entering the Holy of Holies uh, in the tabernacle first and in the temple, the temple later. He would offer a sacrifice and, and that's how he would fulfill his role. But Jesus did it by offering himself, okay? According to, to Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, Okay, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Eternal redemption for who? For us. A bit further down in verse 24, he continues, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then 
Jesus would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Church, can you understand how magnificent this is? Jesus, once for all, died so that we could live forever. And that new life begins the moment that we're born from above by the Holy Spirit of God. His, his blood paid the price for our sins. And by His grace through faith, we receive that payment. And so Jesus is prophet, He is priest, and He is also king, as is evidenced by the title, ruler of kings on earth. You know, earlier we read from uh, Psalm 2 about how the kings of the earth rage against you know, against God and how he <laughs> laughs in derision at them. He scorns them. There's another one, Psalm 89. It refers to the covenant that God made with David. Uh, just, just listen to this, okay? These are a few verses cold out of Psalm 89. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. A little further down, he says, Of old you've spoken a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from my people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him. He shall cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. Get this, get this. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne. As the days of the heavens. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun is before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness. There's that phrase again. In the skies. What do you think of that? I mean, isn't it amazing that God promised David that there would be a descendant of his that would forever reign? And that he would have offspring that, that endured forever. That's so awesome. And if we were to flip ahead in Revelation to chapter 19, we'd, we'd see a vision of what Christ will look like when he returns to claim his rightful throne. He comes back as a powerful figure, astride a white horse with his robe dipped in blood and emblazoned, it says, on his robe and on his thigh. It'll say, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is Christ perfectly fulfilling his office as king. So, so this, is who, this is who Jesus is, church. I mean, what, what an exciting thing for us to be able to recognize him as prophet, priest, and king. That's, that's how he can fully save. Who Jesus is is a very big part of the gospel. But there's also the next verse that helps us to grasp the importance of who he is because of what he does, what the Father does through him for us. So we're going to read the rest of, uh, of verse 5 and verse 6 together. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, what is it that our Lord did 
to bring about our eternal glory and this wonderful grace in spite of our, our fallenness and our rebellion against God. There are several things mentioned right here in the sentence. Um, we ought to take notice of them. We also, we also should not just notice them. They should be precious to our very souls. Okay? They should motivate us to walk in obedience to Christ. Number one, friends, is that He loved us. He loved us. Let me ask you a question. When you have a newborn baby, does that baby do anything for you to love it? No. No, not at all. But do you love it? Why? Because that baby's yours. Belongs to you. You created it. God loves us. I think it's really important because without that, he wouldn't have done the rest of it. Now, I know we're all aware of John 3.16, right? You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life unless you memorize it in the King James with all the eths and forsooths and all that. But, but th- th- that, that scripture, John 3.16, that is probably the, the penultimate memorization scripture for the Christian, right? But we see in this scripture that it's referring to the Father when it says God. And we know from earlier that Jesus only and always does that which the Father gave him to do. Because remember, it says, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. So it's referring to the Father's love. So a thoughtful person might be tempted, weirdly, to think of Christ as being an unwilling participant in the drama of our salvation. But I want you to rest assured, that is not the case at all. Okay? Let me ask you this. Did Jesus have a choice? What did he choose to do? What's that? To be sent by God. Think about that for a second. You think he knew what he was getting into? Yeah, he's God. How could he not? You know, the the Bible says it was for the joy set before him that Jesus went to the cross. I do not believe it's just referring to his return to the heavenly places. You know, I I think it, it seems clear that Jesus was willing to die as a ransom for many because he loves us and he cares for us himself. Remember, he is the exact representation of the Father, according to Scripture. So he loved us just as the Father loved us, and He loves us still. Secondly, consider that He freed us from our sins by His blood. Now, I want you to take a moment and think about that phrase, okay? Notice what it does not specifically say here. It does not say He purchased forgiveness by His blood for our sins. Now, now obviously, He did that too. That's stated several times in Scripture. But here, that's not the focus of God's... uh, you know, what what God led John to write. He says that Jesus Christ freed us from our sins by his blood. Now, what does that mean? I'll tell you, this this is really interesting because there's not a whole lot of places where different uh, manuscripts of the Bible will be different. You know, if you're familiar with the Byzantine, the Texas Receptus, you know, the Westcott Hort and all these different things, there's all these different texts. Most of them agree 
very, very consistently on things, but this is one spot where one Greek letter changes it. And so I want to explain that really quickly, okay? Because some of you are probably reading your King James and you're going, that's not what mine says, okay? So just bear with me here, okay? This is the one place, there's a difference between Greek texts caused by the spelling of a single word. The manuscript that's translated for the King James Version has the word luosanti, which means cleanses. Okay? So the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. Is that true? Absolutely. Okay. But there are some older Greek manuscripts, uh, some that are thought to be more reliable by some, where the word is, is not spelled luosanti, it's spelled lusanti, meaning dissolves or releases. And that's the, the manuscript that most of our Bibles, if you're reading an NIV, an ESV, um, you're probably seeing that word, freeze. Or releases. I think Scripture teaches both of these are true, but there's an important distinction, and I want to encourage you to write down the Scripture references I'm about to give you, okay? You may want to check these out later. Romans 6.2 says that we have died to sin. Just a little bit later, further down in verse 14, Paul says that sin will have no dominion over Christians because they are not under law but under grace. And then he clarifies in verse 18 that we have been set free from sin in order to become slaves to righteousness. And then in Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, Paul says it is the Lord Jesus Christ who sets us free from this wretched body of death. That's the power of sin, according to Scripture. And then in Romans 8, 1 and 2, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us, what? Free from the law of sin and death. And then verse 37, he says that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Listen, if you are in Christ, sin is not your master. Do you understand that? You are not beholden to it. You are not obligated to obey it. You are not supposed to feed your sinful flesh. You are obliged to obey the Spirit of God. For as 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Friends, this is vitally important. Okay, If you are constantly living in a state of rebellion against God, knowing that what you are doing is wrong and not caring how can you possibly be freed from your sins? Live as who Christ saved you to be. All right, we're going to keep going. Um, I, I almost made this to be one point, but the Greek seems, seems to kind of indicate that, that John's saying two things here. So split them up, uh, even though the Apostle Peter doesn't <laughs> in his first epistle. But anyway, uh, Christ made us a kingdom. And so well, what does that mean? You know, if you look up the definition of kingdom, of what it can mean, uh, it can mean wherever the dominion of a king extends, right? I mean, surely you, you might include the subjects of that king, don't you think? Part of a kingdom would be a subject. In that sense, it, it's not always geographically limited, right? And also, like, like the church, one definition of kingdom is the subjects themselves, and that's us. Now, we know the devil is the prince of this world, for the time being, but, but wherever the Holy Spirit of God indwells a believer, that is a sliver of, of the kingdom of God amidst the dark. 
I remember reading a long time ago in a book called Mixed Nuts, it was like a bunch of weird trivia, that the human eye can spot a candle in perfect darkness from 14 miles away. You shine brighter than you think, friend. I think that's kind of cool. John says he made us a kingdom. Then priests to God. And before we get into this, I want you don't miss the fact that with regard to the Son, the Father is called His God and Father. Okay? This is a very interesting way of speaking. I think, I think that Trinitarian doctrine like, sometimes neglects what Scripture itself teaches about the triune Godhead, which I mentioned earlier. It is very clear that there is a hierarchy within God Himself, okay? With the Son having all authority in heaven and earth, except over the Father, who sends the Son, presents the Son, exalts the Son, etc. And the Holy Spirit is sent by or proceeds from the Father and the Son. That seems to be the biblically correct way of understanding one God and three persons. And listen, if I'm wrong about any of this, then you know, I pray the Lord's forgiveness. But it is important, I think, for us to recognize that there, there is a power and a submission dynamic present in the Godhead because there's an example there for us to, to look at and, and, and to, to aspire to in our earthly relationships. That brings glory to God. Anyway, I love that we refer to as priests. There, there's still some branches within Christendom that, that cater to this Old Testament idea that God's people can only come to him through an earthly representative that's part of like a specific class that's been ordained by the church. But the fact is, Jesus himself is the one mediator between God and man. That's according to 1 Timothy 2.5. He is our high priest. Okay? But every single Christian is both a saint and a priest. According to Scripture, Jesus is the high priest, but we are all priests. And as we alluded to earlier, 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are a chosen people. He says we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And the reason is that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So because of this, all glory and power to Him. Jesus is deserving of it all. God has placed Him as the focal point of our faith. He is the glorious representation of the perfect love of God and the perfect life of God. Church, this is who Jesus is and what God has done through Him. And that is the gospel message. And we have the, the privilege and the responsibility of, of sharing that with the world. Now, why should we do that? Why? Because that's a good reason. Because <laughs> we're told to. And also because we're, we're His instruments. God put us here to be instruments to save a dying world. He's the one who saves, but we're the ones that He does it through. He wants to reach the world for his son. You know, earlier we, uh, we read a couple passages from Hebrews 9 um, and looking at Christ's role in our eternal salvation. I want to end this, this sermon with the last two verses from that chapter 9, okay? And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, this is why we're to share the gospel. 
So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. That's what John's telling us, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting Him. Is that you, friends? Are you eagerly awaiting the coming of our Lord? I hope you are. If you're not, if there's something in your heart that's like, I really don't want him to come back right now because I'm not ready. Listen, you can be ready. Pray to the Lord to give you faith. If you believe on Jesus Christ, you know, your, your first step of that is to say, I believe on Jesus Christ. I believe He's a Christ, the Son, the living God. And to recognize you're a sinner and you need Him to save you. And if you've come to that conclusion then your next step, what God has commanded you to do, is to profess that faith publicly and be baptized according to what the Word says. you got to repent of your sins, guys. It's not just a, a thing where you go, well, I guess I'll just say a few words and then I'll just go back to my life as is. No, you are not in Christ unless you are born again by the Holy Spirit of God. And if that happens, there will be a change. It won't be as quick as we like. Trust me on that. But there will be a change because God is living in you. He is at work in you. Let's be obedient to Christ. Let's be thankful for who He is and what God did through Him.